Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. We have a little bit of a different show today. Uh, it's just Jeff and I. Lorian is taking a bit of a break. Um, her daughter, her beautiful daughter, Quincy, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So Lorian is taking some space to adjust to that and work with her daughter and help her daughter. Um, so Lorian's in her own bit of lava, I guess we could say. So you got to give yourself some space and have your friends support you, which is what we're doing today. Lorian will be back. It's just a small break, small space for her. Um, um, and so in Jeff, the meantime, yeah, Jeff, what are we going to do, babe? So what are we, we, do? Put, we put our brains together and. As you all know, I've been producing Megan Lorian on The Screenwriting Life for a couple of years now. Um, my journey with Megan Lorian started when I invited them on an old podcast I used to host to interview them. And I feel like we had a really good interview, but it was very craft oriented, which is always valuable. But I feel like I didn't really get to dig into kind of getting to know both of you in terms of your pre-writing career. And Meg, both of you have had really rich um, careers before you kind of officially transitioned to writing. And so I would love to pick your brain today, Meg, in an interview of sorts, just to kind of hear dun, about, dun, dun, dun. yeah, dun, 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 <laughs> hear about sort of pre-writing Meg and also, you know, what you're up to now and just kind of um, dig into some lava together, if that sounds fun. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Let's um, do it. Before we do that, though, did we want to do an Adventures in Screenwriting? Sure, quick... why not? I mean, we can do each other. Uh, sure. I, uh, you know, I had a realization today um, after a session or getting notes. Um, and you know, it's always the same thing. It's always that process that you go through, but I was really, I was really trying to witness myself, the amount of survival mechanism that's kicking in. And why does my survival brain kick in so hard? I do know many other writers who of course have these moments of survival brain of, Oh my God, it doesn't work. And I suck and fuck you and fuck me. And we talk about that, but I was like, wow, it's a lot of survival brain for me personally that kicks in and um, why? And so I just literally tried to breathe and talk that part of me that even if the worst were to happen, the worst, this whole thing falls apart and I get, what is the worst thing that could happen? I get blackballed and don't ever work with her again. She sucks. Uh, she didn't deliver. And then I'm getting down. I'm thinking about this too. Oh, she's, she disappointed us right? She didn't deliver. It's very disappointing. And suddenly I'm like, oh, here, here, here comes, here comes the lava. And but this, this button I have about disappointing people. But of course, that isn't what's happening in any set of notes. You're just getting information. It has nothing to do with you personally. That's not what notes are. Notes are about this thing in front of you that everybody's looking at and trying to put together this house of cards that they're moving cards around. And yet my brain takes it very personally. And um, I have lots of thoughts in my head that I will never say out loud to people because it's not even real. It's not even really happening. Um, so it's just an interesting thing that after all this time, some part of my identity is still so intertwined here with this, but it really helped me just to breathe and take a walk and talk to myself about 
the worst that could happen, it's still not bad. I'm still here. I still have an identity. I'm still me, right? It, it's, I, my value is not these notes. And even though I say that to everybody else on this podcast, you, it, that tripwire gets tripped and you just have to talk yourself down uh, off of that or else you can't do the work. And I'm very lucky because I have deadlines. So it's not like I can just stay there and not do the work. And for me personally, starting to do the work always re-triggers that other side of my brain. So I, I start to move out of the amygdala and the survival instinct into frontal low practical things. Even like if I'm literally just opening a document and I'm going to, or today what I did because it was all too overwhelming, I just opened an email and I wrote down all the things. Well, that doesn't work because of this. And what about that? And that won't work because of this. Okay, what are the parameters that I need to make work? It has to do this. It has to do this. What's the marble, you know, the marble run that this has to go through? Well, it this, this, and this. And I just start to get very practical um, and then ease, ease myself back into the emotional because of course I have to go back into that emotional side. Um, but for me, even just naming a document um, opening up an email and writing to myself, that all starts to help move me over into the practical work of, it's not about you. It's about this character. It's about, they don't get it yet. Um, and I also am a big believer. The last thing I'll say is if you're many drafts in or several drafts in, even on a puke draft, sometimes a lot of times it's already in there right? It, the answer is in what you've done. It, you just can't see it. Throwing more stuff in is usually not the answer. Uh, throwing more stuff at it just makes it more complicated and they can see it less. It's usually about really digging through and pushing stuff away and realizing, well, that is the same thing as that, or that clouds that. Um, I'm a big fan of Project Runway and they're always saying, edit, edit it. It's too many ideas. It's too many ideas. I can't see what you're doing. I can't see the vision. Edit it down. Um, I love, I don't know if you watch Project Runway. Oh yeah. That's, for that's artists, so smart. It's just, it's so, the, the advice they're giving these designers, they could be giving to writers, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, I, I start to write them down, right? Like, oh, that's, that's such great advice. So I highly recommend it if anybody hasn't watched it because you're going to really watch an artist, artist at work getting feedback and being pushed into clarity of vision and push yourself further um, outside you know, issues that we have of, of marketplace and what buyers want. And it's all very much wrapped up in that show. So the other thing I wanted to talk about for my week was, and I've known this, but it was, it's a kind of realization you make when you actually have, you realize it again and again, um, which is I'm starting to ask myself, what's the game? What's the game here? So that applies to the character. What's the character's game? Like what, do they want? What's the game they're playing? What's their place in the game? It applies to the whole script. What's the game of the script? It applies to dialogue. What's the game of this dialogue? And it's really helping my head kind of get out of my way because it's more of a playful way to look at it. And, you know, um, if you've taken any improv, of course, that is all improv is, which is why I want all of the writers out there to take an improv class, because I think it's super important to understand just from, from an acting perspective, but also as writers, that a lot of it is trying to figure out the game that you're playing uh, and playing a game with the scene or the script or the character. So I wanted to add that in there. I think super incisively, Meg, yeah. what that mm -hmm. will push you to do is make sure your characters have goals because right. the objective to any game is what you're aiming towards. So, you know, every, 
I think it was Mike Nichols who said every scene's either like a negotiation or I'm going to misquote it. So I'll put it in the description, but <laughs> just, I think what's so smart about like gamifying your characters or thinking about scenes in that way is that it will push you towards solutions and goals that your character, it pushes you towards wants and yeah, it, what you always talk about. So yeah. And which sometimes my brain drops off and forgets all about that. Cause I'm so busy doing other things. Um, so it's just a really good little trick uh, to go back right now to your any stories you're writing, your scripts, and ask what the game is in that scene in, as in the whole story. Um, but great, great observation. Yes, it's about wants. Um, and conflict, of course, because it's game. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Jeff, how was your how was your well first of week? all? I have a couple thoughts, like based on what you yeah, just shared. Yeah. It's so interesting. The first one I want to talk about is like the survival approach to notes because I've been feeling that too. And of course it's different for me. I got another festival rejection this week, which is oh, fine again. Sorry. You know, it's okay. It's like, we haven't sent the finished cut to festivals yet. It's hard. This was the cut we sent back in 2021. So right. I know for a fact, I haven't submitted my best work yet. So that's part of what's calming me down, but it's so funny. I, I kind of am tripping into that survival thing too, where all of a sudden this festival rejection isn't about um, something I made. It's about the fact that I won't provide for my family and will never get a job. And, you know, and you're not allowed to be a writer director. You're not allowed right. Jeff, because you got this uh, rejection, right? For sure. Yeah. So it's so interesting because I, do you think there's something about even the survival mechanism reaction that feels like a defense mechanism? Like it's, I'm afraid oh, sure. to actually be hurt by the, cause I'm too professional to be wounded by this rejection. <laughs> I've moved past that now. For now it's just data. It's purely me saying, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always, you know, bag groceries or it's just become something so much bigger. Mine was work at the party store because it's always, I'm not, the, no, sorry, not the party store, the, uh, the you know, the, the dollar store. Cause it's just a dollar, everything's a dollar. It's pretty right. um, I, I, it is a defense mechanism because to be an artist means to put your heart out there. Mm -hmm. And I, watching Project Runway, you can watch it happen where they go from their view of their work, which is, I love this. I, I think it's great to listening to the feedback and then they look at their own work again and you can see the dissonance starting to happen as the, they can either choose to see it the way the judges see it, get broader, try to get perspective on it, or they can choose to say, nope, I like it, you're all wrong. Mm -hmm. And sometimes- it's right to do either one of those. Yeah. Usually I think it's somewhere in the middle. You have to stick to your passion and what your voice is and who you are, but you do have to also look and take in the feedback so that you can grow, so you can get better. So I think it is a survival mechanism because it's your heart that right. you put out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm just, I was afraid to admit like this was, this festival felt personal to me because it was, um, there was a lot of reasons it would have been fun to be in this festival particularly. And I thought I was a good fit and I wrote a great cover letter. So I think truthfully, there was a lot of fuck you and what I was experiencing, but instead I made it about like, well, what would it look like for me to become a CPA or an action? Like it just became something <laughs> totally else. So I, fun into, I'm going to be a CPA. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. In terms of uh, what my week is looking like, um, I'll be curious to see if you think this parallels a script, Meg, but I'm in so the final phases of this movie that I feel like all of the fun and creativity and design elements of what it is to make things have been sucked away from the project and it's all details and nitty gritty important important technical logistics that are like always that last five percent of a project but 
I have sort of lost the joy of making this thing. And it's, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the same with writing too, where it's tweaky. And like, basically what I'm doing is without getting too in the details, I'm having to unnest the whole thing to, for my, for my color and sound team. Right. So, um, and by team, I mean, my colorist and my sound person, it's one person <laughs> each, but it sounds fancy if I say team, I like um, but it's like, it's like I built a house and now I have to, it's like I built the house in the customary system and I have to rebuild it in the metric system so that mm. like production can deal with it. And I'm not sure if that's similar to like the final stages of buttoning up a script for production, but it's interesting. I'm, I'm almost starting to hate this thing and I'll be excited when it's done so I can like it. But again. I think that's like when you're pregnant and finally in like the ninth month, you're like, I do not care how bad this hurts. Get it out. Yes. Like I think nature wants it to get a slightly painful so you can let it go out mm -hmm. into the world, let it be its own thing, let it get accepted, not get accepted. You're right. done. You're moving on to other things. Like I do think that, that pain is part of any creative process, be that the birth, literal birth, uh, or or a script or a movie. Um, I mean, you know, the joke at Pixar and the other places I've worked, especially animation, is when it, it's never finished, they'd work on it until you grabbed it out of their hands. It, it, <laughs> so there's the other part where you just want to noodle, 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 but you're past noodling now, right? Like it's not creative either. It's just math. It's math. It's math. Yeah. It's like reconforming codex so that we can screen it on a big movie, which is all it's called quantum learning so much, but it was interesting. I, on that other show I produced with Jen Loudon, who was on our show, we had a creative coach coming in who used to be an actress who was talking about, you know, that last two weeks before you open during tech week, if everything is going wrong, that's how, you know, you're ready. Like, it's sort of like <laughs> the fires all kind of start near the end and it's the universe challenging you. I think it's everyone pushing you to say, is this really, are you ready? Is this what you want? And I'm feeling like the answer is yes. So I feel like even though I'm in the grind of, uh, I've, and it's all stuff that I'm very unfamiliar with that I'm having right. to learn. So um, you're in the unknown as well. I'm in the unknown. And, and you're like, and I don't creative. even like it. I'm <laughs> suffering through the unknown, unknown and I don't even like it. Yeah. So I'm just having to remind myself that like what it is and what it will be is something I'm proud of, but it's just for anyone who's in like those final stages of the script and starting to hate the project you're working on, just try to like remember and lean on what it is about it that you love and remember that like, it's okay. Like this is all a part of it. It is a part of it for sure. Um, okay. So Meg, we're going to talk yes. about you now. I know. Um, like, where's our guest? What are we going <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to me. Um, I want to start, you've opened up on the show about how it was a deliberate and conscious decision for you to pursue a career in entertainment. You were working in advertising. I'm kind of wondering like, what was that experience for you? Like, like how long had you kind of been yearning to make a career switch? And was there like a moment that tipped the needle for you to decide to just go and do it? Yes, I went to school, to film school at Syracuse University and was a screenwriting major. I'm pretty sure it was one of the first classes that there was such a thing as a screenwriting major there. Um, but then I just totally chickened out. I just totally was like, I'd have nothing to say or write about. Who, do, you know, who the hell do you think you are kind of thing? So I ended up, and I'd always wanted to live in New York City. So I was like, let's do that. So I ended up going to New York with a friend from school and we had an apartment and, you know, little, little apartment that we shared together. And um, I got a job just literally like through the job hunt, uh, you know, like through a, 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 what's that called? The consultant, you know, like a temp um, agency. Yeah. Like, like a temp agency, okay. but it was like for, for, for long term. Work. Yeah. So I went and I got a job in advertising as an assistant and worked my way up. 
And I, the, the specific moment that I remember is I was interviewing to become a supervisor on an account. I was already on like Pella Windows and I had worked as an assistant on a carpet account. And um, so it's very much, you know, it's a very product-based, sell a product. But it's very much my brain too, because on one hand, it's market, product, clients, sell something. And on the other, it's creatives who are creating the ads, who are artists and, and writers. And that's how they think about things. And your job as the executive is to be, to marry those two things, right? Which is very much what a producer does. Yeah. Um, so I was on an interview to become a supervisor on an account. And outside, I am totally nailing it. I am just telling her all the reasons to hire me as her supervisor. And inside, there is a voice screaming, don't give me this job, don't give me this job, don't give me this job. That this will be a prison that I won't be able to unmake if I get this job. I'll be making too much money. <laughs> I'll have too much rep- Like I was like, no, I can't do it. And I listened to that voice. And often we don't listen. But I was like, wow, it was very loud. And then just by happenstance, my good friend from Syracuse, Chris, called and he had worked his way up at an agency and was an agent now and at ICM. And he said, come out here. We need more smart women. Come out here. We, you know, we, we were together at Syracuse. You can do this. Come out here. I, there's a job. Come, just take this job. So he hooked me up with an agent. Her name was Martha Luttrell and to be her an assistant. And now this is a huge step backwards. My father thinks I am crazy. I am an executive. I get, you know, cars are picking me up. I have a big salary and I at 27 or 28, I'm going to go back and be someone's second assistant, not even their first, meaning I'm getting the, the drinks. Like I'm way back, but I, I knew it was better to go towards what my heart wanted. And I thought, okay, well, this will be my grad school. Um, I know I want to be in Hollywood and working at an agency is the center of the cyclone. It is, you, you learn everything you need to know about the business side because you're in the center of it. It takes a certain kind of person if you're in a huge agency because they, you know, it's a culture that you have to um, be ready for. I was very lucky. Martha Luttrell uh, was both a lit agent and a talent agent. So I learned both sides of that representing those uh, both writers and directors and actors. Um, It's a job that you're there from eight in the morning, 7.30 in the morning when they roll out of bed to the when their car pulls into the garage at night. Um, back then there was no computers. So everything had to be memorized and you were looking up names in books and you had long handwritten sheets and you were rolling calls like this. Get me so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, go. Oof. Dealing with clients coming in and a little bit of yelling. Little agencies have a little bit of people yelling very I- loudly. Every once in a while, there's people crying in the bathroom. Assistants are crying in the bathroom. Let's just say it's very stressful. Swimming with sharks is not lying. Did so, you feel like um, you were emotionally equipped for that, Meg? Just because I know it's hard. I wasn't. If you, there's a plenty of agents who, by the way, were great agents, but that if I, you said go work for them, I would have like, no, I can't. Like, no way. I don't have that emotional wall to handle that. Right. I, um, I have trouble separating. And it's something I need to work on because this business, any job, any business, but I think part of being a writer and having that like empathy antenna tuned up is 
even if oh, someone's no, yelling like, at you about work, what I hear is you suck and you should quit. And, no, I know, but that's yeah. why I'm saying I was very lucky. I right. had a little bubble inside of an agency and her name was Martha Luttrell. Martha Luttrell did not treat you that way. She treated you with respect. You were her partner. You know, she was a great mentor to me in terms of how you handle the screamers and how you handle that kind of stress coming down the pike at you because she always handled it with such grace. And yet- disciplined, committed power too. Like she was no pushover, right? She didn't get where she was because she wasn't, you know, let everybody do what they wanted. Like she had, she worked hard for her clients. Um, So she was an incredible mentor for me to be able to do both of those things. I had an engineer father and a painter mother. So I had both parts of my brain. I, you know, that businessy engineering math part, and then the artist part. And this was just really picking one side of my brain, but I also had to do coverage and I had to talk, walk in and talk to her about the scripts and why I thought it would be good for Susan Sarandon or whoever, or why this would be great for Martin Campbell as a director, this new director who now is of course a huge director. Um, so I had to also use that creative part. And that was the part I'm like, Oh, I like this better. Um, so I did my grad school with her for a year. And then, uh, in the agency, there was a guy named Stuart Kleiman and he was, uh, he was in business affairs, which is the lawyers, but he was also a movie buff film nerd genius. And he was starting a company with Jodie Foster who happened to be a client. And I walked down and gave him my resume and he said, I have a thousand of these. And I was like, well, now you have a thousand and one. Cause what are you going to say? You got to still try. Right. Absolutely. And when I went in for my interview, no, this is to move over to producing because I know I don't want to be an agent. Um, And I knew that going in. I just wanted to, you have to be very careful when you go in an agency though, because the culture is very much about becoming an agent and the competition and the drive, but I didn't want that. So I really stayed out of it and tried to help the other assistants who are drowning in, in what they're doing. And I'm running over and asking if I can help and you know, because I don't want to, I don't want to compete with you. That's just who I am. Do you need some help? Look, I'm doing a podcast. This is just who I am. Um, But what's the reason that impacts me later is because when I went in for my interview, the executive Stuart had hired to run the company with him said, Julie said, you know, you should know that some of the people we're interviewing from ISAM are saying, if you don't hire me, hire Meg. That's great. What's that about? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know like, because I, it, I'm not saying be giving as a Machiavellian uh, manipulation, but you have to be yourself, mm. right? Because then you find the people who are your tribe. And, and Julie Bergman is this amazing executive and producer who was very much of my tribe. As it turns out, when I went into my interview with Jody, we talked for like an hour about libraries and research because we're both such nerds about it. I, I'm not walking in to perform for Jody. I mean, you are, of course, but I'm really walking in. You have to be yourself or you're going right. to get a job and you're off course now because Absolutely. you're That's not great with advice. your tribe. Yeah. So you have to be true and authentic with your interests and who you are. My other little clue is if you're going in for an interview is ask questions about them or what you see in their office or where that, you have to be authentic. Like, I really would love to know where did that photograph come from? That's so cool. Well, my husband made it. He's a photographer and now they're talking about themselves, right? Like you want to get into a conversation that's beyond the day-to-day because you want to find out about them. Do you want to work for them? How do they respond to questions? It's interesting with interviews too, especially at small production companies, because you're vetting someone's ability and credentials as much as 
is this someone I'm prepared to hang out with for 12 hours a day? Under you know? incredible stress. Yes, on both ends. So, on both ends. And yeah. that's the same when you're interviewing with a manager or an agent. You're also interviewing them. They are going to represent you out there. What are their chops? What do they know? Who do they know? Like, then there's ways to ask that in a respectful way. What would you do with this project? Who would you give it to? You know, just that's respectful, but you need to also know how they think, how they approach things. So, um, I, and again, I was older. I was, you know, close to 30 now. So I had had some life experience in this kind of soup. Um, and and can I, I ask you quickly, yeah, yeah. what, um, what position are you interviewing for at Egg right now? And Egg well, Pictures is the it's name of an Jody's assistant company. slash creative executive, which okay. means this is a tiny little company. You're right. going to be an assistant, but you're also going to be our creative executive, <laughs> which is great because you have that. Those are the jobs you want, right? Because you're going to move up the ladder. Um, so it's essentially good. admin, and when you're not doing admin, you're contributing creatively to the company as yes. well. Yes, okay. yes. That and there's sense. one other assistant there with me who is this really great guy, and. Um, and then Jody's assistant, of course, Mark. And, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where you learn when you're the assistant slash creative director, creative assistant, creative executive, sorry. Um, you're in a meeting talking about the weekend read when you've read stuff because you've got your pile of scripts you have to read, your 10 scripts, whatever. Um, if Jody's there, you kind of let Jody talk. <laughs> like, you know, everybody wants to hear what Jody's insights into things and you might have to pitch her something. Or it's more like when you're, we've all read the new script that's come in that the, we're producing. I would pretty much allow them all to talk because they are, it's their meeting, but I would know I am going to talk, but I'm going to pick what I'm going to talk about. So smart. And I'm going to pick when I talk and it, and it should be important to me, right? Like, I just don't understand in the script why this so that then I haven't taken up airspace and been chatting the whole day. So they're starting to tune me out. I've been in rooms where young people, I don't know what, it might be nerves. It might be they're trying to prove themselves. It might be they want to be part of the group, but they chat almost, uh, you know, casually the whole meeting to the point that I'm like, oh my God, nobody's listening anymore because this is a meet, you know, we've got to get in there what's happening. So I would always pick. And when I went to Pixar, I did the same. If Andrew Stanton and Pete Doctor and they're in a room, I'm not talking, right? The director's talking, the writers are talking, the producers are talking, but I am going to talk, but I'm going to pick. This is important. Like, I think they really need to know this. I want to, and hopefully you don't just raise a problem. There's another thing that young people often don't understand. If people are asking for creative feedback in a meeting, if you just say, I don't understand this, this is a problem, and you don't have some vague pitch of how to possibly solve it, you're just gonna become somebody who always brings up problems. And it's weird, unconsciously, unconsciously, I think, not consciously, people can start to not want to hear what you have to say, because you're just adding to the pile of problems versus, um, and I think Andrew Stanton talked about this when he was on our show that, you know, what is your solution? Think it through. And you do have to do this very fast because it's moving and turning at the table. But again, I do this. I do this as a writer at Pixar. I did it as a producer. It's the same game. You have to be able to see a problem based on the conversation that's coming, say it articulately, and then an, a possible pitch on how to fix it that just is really to illuminate the problem. You, they may not take that pitch, 
but at least gets everybody's brain flowing towards solution. So I learned all of that skill as a producer in those rooms with one of the smartest people in the business, Jody Foster, whose brain is very, very fast, um, really just can get right to the heart of it. Um, and it, it really taught me so much coming at it from an actor's point of view and a director's point of view, of course. Um, what did your day-to-day look like, especially in terms of your creative responsibilities to the company, primarily coverage or? Well, you're on the phones all day long, rolling calls. I think I had two executives when I started. So that's a tremendous amount of calls coming and going. And you've got to keep track of who all those people are and who you left word for. And so did they call back, right? You're also doing coverage. You're also reading scripts that have come in or that you're looking for, right? Because, you know, as an executive, you want to bring in somebody, right? But it's tricky. You might, once you're a creative executive, be doing generals for new young writers that those agents want to get in some, you know, you're the first stop on the chain up. And by the way, when I became a writer, even though I knew the heads of most of the companies, I still had to travel through that chain. Because all of those executives are in the meetings talking about that writer or that project. You can't just skip and go to the top. It's really, it was really like, you know, surprising to me that this, you go. So I went into, I was hearing generals. I remember I met a new young writer coming out of, I believe it was USC. Her name was Shonda Rhimes and her script was unbelievable. Um, So people who are now like Titans at that time were, they were coming into the industry um, and you have to learn how to do that too. You have to learn how to do a general meeting, um, and, and how to find out who they are as people and writers and what their other ideas are. And do, are they a good match? Like sometimes it's just not a good match for Jody and how she approaches story that has nothing to do with the writer. Um, so let me quickly ask Meg, some of our listeners might be taking generals now, um, on the mm-hmm. other side, right? You're, yeah. you're taking in new talent, new, exciting voices. What are some do's and don'ts that you would advise as a writer going into a general when they're meeting with executives? Well, you do have to have, you know, I'm sure they've heard this, you know, you're going to get asked the question, things like what movie would you have loved to have written? Um, or what TV show are you watching? What's your favorite movie lately? Uh, you know, they're going to ask you and want to know any ideas you have cooking. That doesn't have to be full pitches. It could be, oh, I read this book. I would love to get the rights to it. I love it because I was really looking for their authentic passion and why they love storytelling because any individual project, who knows if we're going to, anybody's going to get the rights or what you can do with it, or you're looking for their passion and who they are so that as other things come in, I can be like, oh, she'd be amazing for that because she loves this or she approaches story this way. What she loves about storytelling is this. So you really have to kind of, as a writer, speak from your heart, but also think about it. Think about what would you say about why you love, what kind of stories you love. And, um, you know, usually when I go into generals as a writer, I'm just talking from my guts and hearts and passion. I get really passionate about stuff I love. Like I I would be like, oh my God, let's talk about the great. Uh, let's just talk about it. Can we just talk about it for time? Like, I just like how much I love it. And, you know, that's not me as a writer, but I love the doing this and he's doing that. And suddenly they're telling me stuff they love. And you're just starting to go back and forth. Uh, forming a relationship really is what you're doing. If you go in thinking, I'm going to get a job out of a general. I don't, most generals are about starting a relationship with somebody so that later they think of you for a job that comes in or you find a book and you want to bring it to them, right? So that's really what a general more is. And eventually at Egg, um, I became a, a 
a, a VP, and then eventually um, I ran the whole thing. I was uh, I was her president. We had a deal at Paramount, and uh, you know that was a whole other level, man. That is just a level of executive miss where you're in rooms with Sherry Lansing and Al Pacino and you got to deal with Mel Gibson's partner and uh you know it's it's the big time it's the big time Can I ask and, Meg yeah. sorry to interrupt is there yeah. any part of you obviously transitioning into writing and building that career is a dream that was your dream that is your dream mm. is there any part of you that misses kind of like being a hotshot executive bigwig and meetings at studios and not, not one not at all. second, which tells you I made the right choice. Yeah. For me, it became very clear when, because I was taking writing classes on the side. I was also teaching at UCLA. So again, I don't have babies at this point. So I literally am at night either teaching at UCLA because I'm a teacher. I can't help it. I was what I love. And the you were teaching program, producing at UCLA. I was teaching so. producing okay. at UCLA grad school. And then, um, but I'm teaching development. So all the directors and writers are coming to my class to learn how to rewrite and right. what is development and what the hell is this and what is the, the, the what we're going out into, right? Um, but I, um, what was I saying? Oh my God, where was uh, I? What just, was the train of thought? I asked about the gap between what it was like to be a hotshot executive oh, so versus- I am also taking, I can't take, I can't write screenplay because my development brain is way overdeveloped. It's like, you know, I'm NBA level now developer in terms of being able to be in those rooms, but you're still right at like high school basketball level. Like right. that's just, your brain is not ready. It hasn't, it hasn't gone, it hasn't done it enough. So I wrote, I took a short story class at UCLA Extension, which was so, so helpful um, because I had a wonderful teacher and he was so supportive and he would put like checks next to things he loved and double checks. And you know, it starts to give you feedback, right? Of writing what he likes. And um, I think the thing that made me a writer as well, very much as I took a class with a woman over, lives over in Venice um, and it was autobiographical writing. So every night, once a week, you'd go in with the same 12 people. So it's very intimate. You get to know each other and she'd either read a poem or she'd give some sort of prompt. You could use the prompt or not. And then you just had to free write for an hour an autobiograph, something memory of your life or something that came up based on that prompt. Autobiographical, not fiction. And then you took a break and had a cookie and tea. And then you came back and everybody read it out loud and you talked about it. And all it was about was about, wait, what happened right here? You, 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 you cheated, you left the story. You didn't go towards the lava. Basically, it was all about the ways the brain is trying to get the lava out, but avoid it. And you're hearing other people go right at the lava and how powerful it is and, and how life-changing it is just to listen to them do it. So you suddenly realize, oh, they didn't burn up. It was a gift. It was this incredible gift and it's rewiring my brain to push into that and that I'll live and it'll be okay. And you're getting beautiful supportive feedback of, oh, when you did that, that right there, that made, got, I got my tears in my eyes when you did that. So it was this, I really think that is one of the reasons that I decided, okay, I, I want, I want to do this. And there was, came a day when I realized that my worst day writing was still better than my best day of producing for me internally. I have friends who are born producers and, you know, you know, I, I by the time I'm at the president of the company, I'm on set producing 
And I can do it, but I don't love it. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean that's what you have to do. Right. And it's really a hard choice because I'm really good at this, but I, and I'm not a very good writer, but my heart is not here and I'm not enjoying this. I am not enjoying this. (laughs) Like uh, when the, they bring in the camera truck that's too big and take the side roof off of this woman's trailer. And I'm on the phone getting yelled at by some agent because the actor won't show up unless it's alphabetical order and the financier's on the phone. And what are you, and I'm like, you know what? All of you have to wait because uh, this lady's trailer just got smashed. So I'll call you back. You know, it's just, (laughs) my friend, Julie loves that. She lives for that moment. And I'm like, oh my God, if I even see a honey wagon, I'm like, oh my God, I I don't want to be here. I would want to be there if it was my show, right? Again, like I think I could take all those skills and will take all those skills I have towards a vision. That's my vision. I think uh, it's why when I finally got a job on a TV show as a, just a staff writer, I could go down. I can go to ADR. I can go to edit because I've been there. I've been to all those places as a producer. Um, so I just, uh, I realized that I didn't, um, that I was, and honestly, my husband was tired of me complaining about it. You know, <laughs> it's, it was like 10 years. I was an executive with Jody for 10 years and I learned so much and it was amazing, but I would complain at night over dinner sometimes about the writing and the developing and in terms of what I was getting back and what I wanted. And finally he said, you know, listen, should I get off the pot, man? You know, you either quit and go be a writer and do what writers do, which is fail and write many drafts and have the artist's life, or you can never complain about it again. That helped. And I also had a friend who said to me, well, what if I said to you, you're not allowed to write? And I was like, oh, that just feels like a big fuck you. Okay, clearly. So I did it. I went to Jody. I took her out for a hot dog at the commissary the crew commissary, which again, we were kind of- What lot were you guys on? Paramount lot. Paramount, okay. We never went to the executive dining room. It's just who we are. Like she likes to hang out with the crew. I'm blue collar from a blue collar family. We just want to go get hot dogs and hang out. I don't think she had a hot dog probably. I probably did. (laughs) Um, She might've, I don't remember, but I told her and she was really happy for me uh, and thrilled. It was a little gift of the Magi, I think, because- she was like, oh, and I, she was keeping the company for me and I was keeping it for her. It was a little bit like she was ready to um, also move on. So um, that I did and I jumped off a cliff. It, you know, so I jumped off a cliff in New York and now I jumped off a cliff again because it, that voice is rising again. So right? before we move on to your writing career, Meg, yeah. uh, when you moved to Hollywood after your run as an advertising executive, did you know you wanted to be a writer then or were you just attracted to the business of storytelling? Does that make, does that question make sense? Yes, I, okay. because I had been a writer at, at school, I had this idea of it, but no, I had already abandoned it and said, well, I'll just be a developer. I'll just help people tell their stories, which I do like, and I do do this as a consultant. I do it as a teacher. It's something I love doing. So it's an authentic part of me. Um, but I became aware that I was becoming and had become a shadow artist where I was trying to write through the writers. And that is, is just not a fun process for you or the writer. Yeah. Um, And when you get in it on the other end where there, somebody is trying to write through you, like literally you just want to call up and go, you know, can you just write it? Because you've kind of wasted two years of my life because you should have just (laughs) told me that was the only version 
You know what I mean? Like all of the, yeah. oh, we love you and you're writing and you have the vision, blah, blah, blah. Isn't really true because you're trying to write this through me. So why don't we just, just tell me that and then we'll just do it and I'll do the best version of that. See, I get a little bit like, ah, because just, yeah. Um, so I was a shadow artist and I didn't want to do that anymore. And I think that also the last thing I'll say about it is I realized it's probably after my husband called me out on it. Um, I would never know what I could have done. I would never know what I could have given to the world in terms of storytelling. I would never know what stories I could have told. And that was, that was painful to not know that, that I'd be 80 and wondering what if, what if I had jumped off? And I also now am you know, I'm 40, so I'm 37, 38. So it's time to jump. Like I, I really started to feel, and by the way, I'm not saying you can't jump after 40, but in terms of I was, if I was going to stay in Hollywood, I was going to take the next rung up, right. It was going to get even harder to jump off because there is so much money and prestige and fanciness and so much ego, so much ego feeding, which is good and fine, but it's hard to give up. I had a friend who was a very big executive producer producer. And he, I had multiple friends actually who wanted to make this jump. So they take me to lunch and we talk about it. And I've warned all of them that when you make the jump, the universe is going to come to you and offer you a big juicy red apple to go back. It's almost like the universe saying, are you committed? Are you sure? Prove it. And it happened to him. He got the big juicy red apple. He chose to take it for his reasons, which I respect. And I think were probably the right reasons. My big juicy red apple was a very huge, large uh, writer director calling me and saying, I'm interviewing three people to run my new film company. I want you to be one of them. And now I have to call him and say, no. And what am I doing? We're not going to say who who I am. But for those... I was just going to say, I promise every listener knows who this person is because Meg has told me. Oh, I'll tell you because I told, I saw him at, the, I think the Academy run and I told yeah. him about this and he has no memory of it, of course, but <laughs> um, it was J.J. Abrams. And, you know, it's J.J. Abrams. Like, I'm a huge fan. Like, you could be part of his creative vision and everything he puts out in the world and like, what? That's the great job. That is a great job. And, you know, and from everything I've heard of him, he's a decent human being too. Like, it's not even like you're going to go work for a maniac. Again, I don't know for sure because I haven't worked for him, but from everything I've heard, he has a wonderful reputation. And I had to call up J.J. Abrams and say no. First of all, did anybody ever say no to J.J. Abrams? I don't know, because who would? You'd have to be crazy. And I, so what I did is I wrote out literally a response that was like four pages long. And I read it to my friend Felicity and Linda. And I was like, okay, let me read this to you because I'm going to call him back. And, blah, 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 blah. and my friend Felicity listened to the whole thing and she went, you know, I think maybe the universe just wants you to say to J.J. Abrams, I'm a writer now, period. Like, that's it. And I was like, oh my God, you're right, shit. So I called him back and he was very quiet when I told him, you know, I'm, I'm a writer now. And I was like, but listen, this is so kismet. You called me on my birthday and I feel like you are the universe tempting me. And it's like dead silence. And I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck? And then all of a sudden he's like, that's so cool. I love it. Because of course he loves being a tool of the universe and, and, and offering this. And then he said, 
come in and pitch me your ideas. Yeah, I'm sure he was excited because the thing is, J.J. Abrams uh, a writer, so I'm sure he was. You can't if you're truly a writer, and J.J. Abrams truly is, right? I mean, he created yeah. Alias oh as a show writer. Like I'm sure his instinct was, "I'm so excited for you." You know what? Good for you. He was, and that's yeah. again a good guy. He right. was so excited. He let me come in and pitch my ideas to him, and then he set me up. And by the way, I'm way too early in my process in development, my human creator writer development process to be pitching to J.J. Abrams. It doesn't matter that as a producer, I could have, as a writer, I'm too young. I don't have it yet. I don't have the ideas. I don't have the samples. So it didn't go anywhere other than to me, that was the universe saying you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. I still had to, I want everyone to understand this. I still had to write many horrible, sucky scripts that did not work. I still had a good five year climb to get to the manager agent job. I'd already been in the business. I already knew all the development speak. And I've, you know, I know a lot of people read all the books and all that stuff. I'd done that live in the rooms. It only happens when you write. You have to write horrible things, realize the idea doesn't work. Next script. Oh my God, this is way too big for my skill set. I'm not ready yet. This is too big of an idea. I realized that on draft three. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. For sure, I can think of right now four full different feature scripts I wrote five times each. And that's while I'm suddenly having babies and taking care of babies and being home, being the wife, like that's now my job. And so I'm also writing at night. I'm still writing at night. And when the babies are sleeping, I'm not just writing all day. So because, you know, when you have a baby, there's no better excuse not to write than have a baby. <laughs> it's true. Another way the universe tempted you to bail. Oh, my God. The baby has to be fed. I can't write. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's so perfect. And then I had two of them. So, wow. I really now I have a toddler. Um, but you do. But you have to. That's I, I quit a job to do this. Suddenly right. the pressure's on. Right. So I did it until I finally had the script that. I and I went to Sundance Lab with my friend John Morgan. We wrote a script together. And that was a real experience. I think I thought I was going to go to the Sundance Lab and be knighted a writer. Like literally, I thought when I got onto the mountain, it was going to be like, you're a writer. And kind of the opposite happened. Not with the Sundance people, but with some of the mentors and other writers, I got really challenged yeah. that I was jumping over from being a producer. Um, and you just, you know, again, it's calling my husband and uh, at night and him crying and him saying, you have to decide you're the writer. Mm. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to give you that. You're a writer. Basically fuck those people. <laughs> right. You just have to be, say you're a writer. Um, it's like, I think I've told the story of my friend, Ron meeting, I think it was Bakula who said, is directing a hobby or is it your profession? You decide. Do you think I had you to may... decide it was my profession. Writing was my profession. Even though I wasn't being paid for it. I had kids. I had all these distractions. This is my job. I sometimes think too, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with this, but certain mentors, especially non-writing mentors, producer mentors, industry mentors, they sometimes go into reading emerging writers' work prepared to protect that writer. So, you know, they're they're afraid to give you the green light because they know how hard it is. So, you know, I've When you said, say the green light, what do you mean the green light? Like, well, you were just saying at Sundance, some of the feedback you got was maybe you're not ready for this. Maybe you should take a step back. Maybe you're a producer. I, I want to say this tactfully, and you can tell me if you disagree, but sometimes people who are wary of you, wary of giving you that feedback to really dive in and go are trying to protect you because Absolutely. they know it's for really number, hard. Yeah, number one, for sure. 
you don't want to smash a emerging writer by giving them notes that are just too hard. And because we, the, you take it writers, not you writers take it personally. And so you have to be very, um, the best feedback can be deep, but supportive, but that is a whole other skill set that a lot of people just don't have. So they get a bit in a quandary. It's why a lot of people don't want to read early writers work because they, it's a, it's a whole responsibility, um, that prose you're going to go because that's, I mean, pros still need you to say everything that works and blah, 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 but that's their job. And so, yeah, for sure. And if you're an emerging writer and you really want it from that person, you can ask for them. Like, don't, don't hold back. Let me know. I think still think they will hold back a little bit, but that's okay. Get what you can get and keep going. And for me at Sundance, it was more, well, you didn't really write this, right? Like you didn't really do this. I mean, John did it. You you helped John, right? Yes. And I'm thinking, no, I wrote more than half of this. Like, can I show you the scenes I wrote? And another guy walks up to me and goes, you know, I thought, no way. She's just a producer riding on the coattails of this writer director. And then I thought, no, because you know, the chick parts could have only been written by a chick. And I was oh like, thank you, I think, <laughs> I don't know. Thanks. This is not the kumbaya writer. But again, Sundance is like, a, for me, was like, a, it's whatever you need to work on inside. There were other writers who were having that kumbaya experience, right? So again, it wasn't about Sundance as an organization. I should probably be very careful about this. It was about where I was psychologically in my progression into owning that I'm a writer, right? And I, I came off that mountain with an incredible gift of owning it, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. And so I, I, uh, that script with John got us noticed, uh, by Pixar and, but we went up there to pitch on a job and it didn't work out. Um, and then I wrote a script for Warner brothers in which they said, did I say this on the show already? This story where, in which they said, we're coming to you because you write real, you like real characters. And I was like, great. So again, so you hear the branding that's happening. You write real characters, real people. And this is a, um, a movie from Ireland and the, the drafts we hired are too broad. It doesn't feel real. And then I wrote it and they were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and the, my friend Chris was like, real, they don't want real, real. They don't want, they want like bridesmaids real. That's real. Which by the way, I just watched again. I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing movie. Um, and real, but still broad in its right. own way. Right. Yeah. And I suddenly was like, oh my God, I totally messed this up. Um, but that was the right script for Pixar. Interesting. It was the right, it was the real, real for Pixar. So yeah. it's never a straight line, mm -hmm. right? It's not going to be, I think because we go to school, we think it's going to be, you know, ninth, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, college, sophomore, freshman. And then you're, that, that kind of direct ladder is going to happen. That is not how it works in artistry. It's go left, go to A, B, Z, T, U. And as long as each opportunity you are being authentic and pushing yourself, pushing yourself to get more notes, pushing yourself to think about it again, um, being true to your passion, then it ricochets and finds its next thing. So can I ask Meg, like on like day one, you've left egg, you're ready to really dive into the writing pool. Were you tempted at that point like, when did you look for a manager? Like, when did you feel like you were ready to like unveil yourself oh, and actually yeah. show your work to, cause you had a lot of industry contacts. Oh yeah. I had a ton of industry contracts right. and I had a ton of industry contacts who were like producer friends who would give it to their manager friends and their, you know I mean? So like it was a starburst of contacts to anybody I wanted really. Um, nope. I did not. Absolutely not. I knew enough about the business that I had no sample ready to show a manager 
I really didn't go until I went with John from that script that got into Sundance and a script that can get into the Sundance lab, you can probably show a manager or writer. That was kind of a good, I didn't set out for that bar, but that's the bar that came. And I was right. like, okay. That came to you. That came to us. And we got a manager from that. And then when we went to Pixar, they said, you know, you don't have a comedy sample. And I was so mad. And John was a director, writer, director. And he was being very honest about this train he had gotten on with me, which was, you know, I, I don't know if I want to write these big Pixar movies. I'm, I want to write and direct my own indie films. And so it came to this point where I, and people were questioning if I was really the writer. And so those kind of come, came together in three, you know, intersections. And I was like, I have a comedy idea. I'm writing it. I'm going to prove to Pixar that I can write comedy. I'm going to prove to the world that I can write on my own. So I did it. I did it in two weeks. Now I had this part percolating in my brain and I gave it to our manager, Charlie, who was on our show. And I'll still, I'm going to out him here. I still remember Charlie saying, Meg, you're a writer. And I was like, geez, Louise, good thing I wrote that script. Um, but of course he meant on your own by yourself. He heard my individual voice versus the voice that had merged between John and my voice. And so from that script, I got the Warner Brothers job and now he's representing me solely because John is really wanting to do something else. Well, I'm um, sure too, there were people carrying the producer of you too. Like I'm sure, like let's say at worst it was internalized misogyny, at worst it was people doubting your ability to be in a partnership, but maybe the more generous version is people still view you as a hotshot executive working for Jody who wants to try writing. Yeah, I never writing, took it as right? misogyny. I never yeah. took it that way. Of course, now I'm like, wait, was it? I think I'm um, taking I it never, that way, but maybe I should. I never took it that way. Um, it's much more that you're an executive and you ran a yeah. company and, you know, that's a, a, a it's not an impossible or even super challenging transition, but it's a transition mostly in your own head and letting, not letting those voices of people who are confused by it, um, that you've stepped out of your slot. Um, okay. Selfishly, I'm married to someone who works in the industry as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know much about your relationship with Joe. He's mm -hmm. obviously a huge part of your story. It always right. is when we have spouses and partners. Can I ask like, what were the advantages, maybe sometimes the challenges of being married to someone who was also in the industry? Well, the advantage of course, is they understand what we are going through. I mean, if my husband wasn't an artist, I don't know if he could fully understand the depths of the, of the psychological, emotional, spiritual challenge you go through as an artist, which is what this whole podcast is about at some point. Um, you know, the, the disadvantage is sometimes it can feel competitive. I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, baskets and, and jobs and, um, but generally that hasn't happened too much. Um, so I have found it very helpful. We did at the very beginning of my career, try to write something together and it was too soon. I hadn't found my own voice yet. So now at the, at, at this, um, other part of my career now, we've just written something together. So that is, and it's great. And we're both our own people and have enough ground under our feet to find that middle ground of what the voice is together. Um, Cause you know, here's the thing about writing with your spouse is sometimes, and this goes both ways, him to me and me to him. You want to talk to your spouse, not your writing partner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that I, you have Laura and I have tried it. that as well. And it worked, it's ironically, it worked very early on for us, but I feel like we both changed and I feel like it, uh, right now it might not be the best time. And the, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but 
that's no, it's true. It's going to come and go and right. things ebb and flow and you each yeah. are growing and deciding things you like. And you're changing too, by the way, the relationship is changing just normally. And you're changing because you're growing up and having kids and finding out about yourself and blah, 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 blah. So, um, but overall it was really great because I was able to quit egg only because Joe was a working writer who could take the burden of the finances. Right. So I didn't have to do that job. Now, again, I had babies and other things and that became my job, but so we traded, right? So then when I'm now writing and when I get my job at Pixar, he's able to step back. He, he had this documentary he wanted to make. So he made that documentary, right? So it's been a great kind of back and forth of um, who's taking that responsibility. I think for some of our listeners, it might look like you've arrived. You're an Oscar nominated writer, mm-hmm. but I know for you, there's probably so much that you want to do. And yeah. I'm wondering like, how do you balance the feeling of letting yourself enjoy some of the success you've uh, achieved and also like setting goals and beacons and continuing to chase those. And what are some of those? I'm curious to hear like what you are still kind of dreaming to achieve. I don't, I don't enjoy that what I've achieved part other than in being able to do this podcast, being able to consult, being able to help other people and having some, clout to do that right um that they'll listen to me let's just say and meaning for me that is the gift of that is that I can give back both all the producing I've done and the writing and how it comes together and think about it and that's the best part you know Hollywood is great and the clout is you might get offered some projects I'm not saying it doesn't exist but you know it's always what have you done for me lately right like you know the next thing comes in you better knock it out of the park. That's how I feel because you can slowly get forgotten uh, if they're paying money and you're not delivering. So it's, it's, for me, it can actually add pressure. Like if you're the unknown, you knock it out of the park. They're like, wow, where'd you come from? You don't, they don't know you. So they didn't pay much money. They took a shot, but once you're up higher in the stratosphere, the pressure is on, in my opinion, well, the deliver. more success you have, the higher the expectations for each how project. Much higher the expectation become. and how fast you're going to get to yeah. it. And, you know, I, my personality, and this is not every writer, is I feel that pressure. Um, uh, so for me, I give back. That's the best part of the clout. Um, and then the rest is pressure. <laughs> and in terms of my beacon, um, I, my, my beacon has been for a while that I want to take the producing part of my brain and the writing part of my brain and put it together and run my own TV show. Um, so we'll see, you know, if that'll happen or not. I've had a couple of shots. I've had a couple of times at bat. Um, we'll see if that happens. But I'm also still writing features because it is my original love and what I um, am known for. So I'm still I'm still doing that as well. But in terms of beacon future, it, that's what it would be. Well, it's interesting too, because even the TV landscape has changed so much since you started. So oh I'm God. sure it's- When you know, I started, you couldn't go back and forth and it was very segregated in terms of feature writers, TV right. writers. Feature was the ultimate thing and TV was kind of the poo-poo bad cousin. And now it's kind of almost flipped. Well, it hasn't mm-hmm. flipped. Now they're both um, you know, things to shoot for that are so great and great storytelling being done. Right. Um, I think that's wise though, because I think there is something to be said about watching how the landscape is like, I would have never thought I wanted to be a director or even that I could, but now that you can shoot so many first time directors are making their own thing. I mean, who knows for me, but I think what I'm trying to say is like, it's valuable to recognize that things can change 
even yeah, in your own you career. did and found out you like it right like you could have done it and been like yep like my friend is a writer he directed once years ago and i asked him if he was this new thing he, he sold is he going to direct it and he goes directing's for suckers <laughs> so, <laughs> like he did not it was clearly i was like oh i didn't realize it wasn't for you like and that's important to know too right, right. but yeah. now you know that you that you enjoyed it and liked it so Certainly. Uh, well, Meg, I can't thank you enough. I feel like this was, even if you oh don't, my God, I feel like, feel like it so was valuable. so, I'm worried that it was too uh, inside baseball, like just telling my story. But if it's of interest to anybody, there it is. I hope it has some uh, inspiration. Uh, you'll never take the same path as me. That's true. My son is right. But um, the ability to try to stay authentic and be a fighter and have a little bit of metal inside in terms of if somebody tells me no, I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. No, there's no way to do this. I can't think of any way to do this. Um, you do have to have that. And that's in terms of writing or going through the, the Hollywood system. I'm not saying I have that always, but you, you can find it. Your grit, your determination, your your commitment. Well, um, what I think is so empowering and valuable, Meg, is that like, despite having built an impressive career in this business, none of that nepotism really carried you towards becoming a successful writer. And that's an empowering thing for all of us to hear, because I think sometimes we assume that writers have some kind of magic door or special power that gives them the ability to start working. But just like all the rest of us, it was your material that got you. It was the magic door is the material and that I wrote for five years trying to get multiple drafts, multiple drafts, multiple drafts, multiple projects to get the single thing. Right. So if that's the only takeaway our writers hear is that no matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, that magic door is to write. I think there's nothing more valuable than to learn that. You and know? you're going to put out a script and people aren't going to like it, or you're going to get not great feedback and you're going to go again, you're starting a new script. And then that one's going to get you a little bit further, but poof, didn't happen. Go again, right. write another one. You're going to go a little bit further, go again. It's not a one and done deal. It's a, that is the climb that you're doing multiple ones and getting a little bit closer each time. Well, so valuable. I can't thank you enough. I'm especially excited. I know I mentioned this was a special episode. We are bringing in um, a very, I know he's a very intelligent brain because he shares genes with one of our esteemed hosts. Uh, Meg, your son Aiden had some questions that he was particularly interested in asking you. Aiden, I know there was a specific reason that you wanted to interview your mom and it has to do with other interviews you've heard with talent, right? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the interviews I've seen of filmmakers and storytellers, people are always super interested in, you know, what's your story or how did you get your start or what film festivals did you go to, which are all super interesting questions. But those are also questions I think I can find on Wikipedia if I have enough time to go search it. And so the interviews are so short that they don't really get time to go to more in-depth questions about the process of storytelling. I think those are more answers that you can just find on Wikipedia or a bio, which is great. And I, those are super interesting questions, but I was more interested in like kind of more nitty gritty details about when you're just sitting there writing a script or you're on set trying to make a movie, like what are the thought processes that are going to help me when I'm in the same situation? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, oh, well, Martin Scorsese said, that he did this, maybe I'll try that and I'll try it and it doesn't work, but it leads me to do something else. And I was just more interested in like the actual process questions rather than more, I mean, general biographical questions. 
All right. So here you are. I don't know what these questions are going to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, dude, go. All right. So my first question is, what is the character that scared you most to write? Oh, my God. That is a good question. It scared me to write as in it's it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard because um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it was just scary. Um. I will be super honest and say all of them at some level are scary because you have to find them and figure them out in terms of what they're literally their dialogue and their voices on the page. And I can go scenes and scenes and scenes thinking I have the character. And then all of a sudden she or he or it will say something. And you're like, oh no, there you are. Like I distinctly remember when sadness laid down. I didn't know she was going to lay down. But all of a sudden I'm right in the scene and she just laid down and I was like, ah, there she is. Joy was hard to write because incessantly happy people are annoying. So it became about finding the nuance of that and that her happiness is actually a default when she feels vulnerable. It's her way of feeling safe. And I would say disgust was a super hard character to write, um, but then you bring in, I'm very lucky because on that particular movie, you bring in these comedians and actors who are also in their own right storytellers and they just start uh, and a lot of their improv artists so they can just go into the booth and they can do what's scripted as as a as a inspiration and then they just start improving, which is great for me to learn to want to have to be able so what I do sometimes when I can't find the character is and I learned this in animation I just start doing alts like I don't erase it write it again, erase it, write it again. Because, you know, what always happens is three times back, you're like, shit, I should have kept that, but I erased it. So you just start doing alt. So you write the character's name, write in parentheses, A-L-T, alt. And then I write, I write it again, alt, 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 alt. And suddenly sometimes something starts to emerge because my brain is dumping all of these versions of the dialogue. So um, that's kind of what I do when I get stuck or the character's scary. Captain Marvel was pretty scary because she had so much there was so much weight on her to deliver her and deliver her for all womankind, which of course is impossible. <laughs> so while we had to think about what it meant to be a woman, Nicole and I also at some point had to forget all about that and just not think about that anymore and just think about the character and why we love them. I guess I'll go back to Andrew Stanton's, why do I fucking love this character? Um, so it's maybe not a great answer, but all of them. <laughs> Well, I might I might need to challenge you a little bit here because you're my mom. But was there ever a character uh, in a script that felt so deeply personal, or that you were being so vulnerable, and like that you were so afraid to write because you thought it was you on the page? And if you ever did write a character like that, like how did you push through that fear? Well. I'm thinking about it. I mean, because all of my characters are me. I don't know. I'm an empath. So I sit deep down inside of them uh, every time I write them and really try to stand there wherever they are standing and what would they feel and what would you do? Um, but for sure, you know, when Riley comes home and tells her parents, you don't want me to be happy. You don't want me to be sad. You don't want me to not be happy. Uh, that was me when I was 11 years old. Now, Riley's brave enough to say it out loud. Uh, but for me, I didn't even realize I was going to write that. We were in such a heavy deadline that I had to write that scene really fast. 
I mean, literally like within half a day. So it was great though, because writing fast sometimes, which is why I'm always on this podcast, encouraging people to do vomit drafts and just get it out. It just, my brain couldn't stop it from coming up. So it just landed. At the time I wrote it, I didn't feel particularly vulnerable. But when I saw it in the theater, I thought I was going to (laughs) die. I was literally like, oh my God, I'm naked in front of all these people. And I just mean the theater at Pixar where they were going to give you notes. And it literally was like looking at myself on screen. And I literally couldn't breathe. I just felt so exposed. Um, But certainly when you write, whenever you get towards that lava, that exposure, you got to write right towards it for sure. So where in your life do you find your inspiration? My children. (laughs) That's exactly what I wanted to hear. (laughs) Um, It's so egotistical, but I find it in myself. I find it in my own experiences. I, of course, find it in books and plays and, you know, things that are inspiring to read or IP that I want to do, but... No, the best inspiration is, okay, I'll give you inspiration and don't, nobody steal this idea or steal it because I'm never going to do it. So I was brushing my teeth this morning and I was like, I don't know, I probably because I'm stuck in a script and I don't know, whatever, for whatever reason, you're like, I just wish it was like Outlander and I could just like go to a stone and like go back in time and it'd be so much better and, you know, it'd be so much easier. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, no, it wouldn't be. It would be horrible. I would have to like make my own soap. There'd be like animal poop everywhere. I'd be like, wouldn't be able to write except with a quill. And I just started listing in my head the kind of romantic version of the past versus the the reality of if you went back in the past and what it would be like. Um, there would be probably rampant racism just as a norm, which would drive, you know, which would be unsufferable. And it just, just, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And suddenly it was like, oh my God, I could totally see Amy Schumer doing this movie, right? Like, so suddenly is that inspiration? I don't know. The inspiration was listening to my insides and what I was longing for and what I, where I was feeling stuck. And then this crazy, silly solution came up. I'm not going to probably do that, but So it can be that fun and silly, or it can be much more um, serious or not serious, but um, lava. So certainly writing The Good Dinosaur many times, I was accessing my special needs son, your brother, right? In terms of what it must feel like to not be in, not be able to accomplish what other people can accomplish, to not be up meeting expectations, right? But then of course, I'm also thinking about myself and what it felt like, cause I had a very powerful father with a lot of expectations, right? And my father had also died. So dealing with the death of a father and the grief of that. And I remember once when we were developing the good dinosaur, Pete Stone said, God help me, we are not doing a ghost dad scene. We're not doing it. And of course, I was like, well, maybe, but he's a dead dad and the whole movie's about it. So we'll see. And then, of course, it works its way in and it's beautiful and amazing. But, you know, I'd had a dream about my father uh, and he came to me in a dream. So that scene is very important to me. Is it important to everybody else in the world? I don't know. Is that movie important to everybody else in the world? I don't know. But it's deeply personal to me. It's deeply, it was an incredible uh, movie and experience to help Pete Stone make that movie 
So to me, every movie, you're just digging and digging and digging into myself for the inspiration. The more I kind of try to look out in terms of what would other people think or what would other people write or what should I be writing? You know, oh, I don't want to be sentimental or the more you're kind of moving into judgment brain and you're losing the roots and the connections to what makes your writing specific and authentic and your voice, you'll lose your voice. Um, The more you move into, I'm not gonna worry about if this is sentimental right now. I'm not gonna worry about if this is too expository right now. I'm not gonna worry about it. There's time and drafts to worry about that. I'm gonna try to dig down to the, the depth of this and what really makes me me feel it when I'm writing it. Like that's the best. I don't know how you two writers feel, but when you're actually feeling it while you're writing it, uh, that's the best. You're out of your head and into your body. That's the best. So I remember I I asked this question really poorly to a composer I was watching and he got kind of like taken aback, but hopefully I don't like mess this one up, but- Cause if you do, I'll ground you. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I was wondering, and maybe more specifically, what was a creative setback? Or maybe it was just a setback within the realm of like writing or being a creative person that maybe at the time was either devastating or really hard, but that you learned a lot from. And what did you learn from that? Mm. Well, you know, I'll talk about this. I don't talk about this a lot, but I will talk about it. Um, so I was working at a big, huge, famous animation studio that is not Pixar. And I was going to write and direct with another animation director, a movie that ended up not going forward. And it was really hard. It was really hard. I really felt like I failed and that, um, I took year, more than a year out of my career to go do this and you know and at that moment you're like and now I have dust in my hands and if anything else I feel like oh my god does the whole town know and you know your brain can really start going it also didn't end well it didn't end in the most supportive way that it could have ended let's just say that uh it ended in quite a painful the needlessly painful way uh for me personally um and that, it was hard. I, I, I got very angry. I got very resentful, which is harder now to move on. And it does, that resentment and that anger and that hurt can start to block your creativity. It's best if you can use it <laughs> in your next script with a rageful, angry character who wants to, uh, uh, you know, take their vengeance. Uh, always better to put that in a script. Um, but I still sometimes feel, uh, can feel it if I think about it too much. If I let myself go down that rabbit hole, um, that, you know, I guess at some point now, given how many years ago it was, um, it's kind of like getting the juice of victim power, if it does that make sense, like the, the power you feel from being victimized, right? Um, but I don't think it's good power. It's not useful power. It's not creative power. So, you know, if you're not deeply rooted when the storms come in, 
you are going to be lost because the storms always come in. And if you think you're on a creative journey and there's not going to be storms, you're out of your head because there's, that is the creative journey is moving through those storms to grow and evolve yourself, your story, the project, everything. Um, and I wasn't rooted in it. I just wasn't. And those storms came in and I got battered. I just got battered. And I kept thinking I could will my way into it. I could think my way into it. If I just, you know, what if me and this other writer just went away for a couple of days to a room? We could, we could will, I could figure it out, you know? Again, it's going to evolve and you don't at all. I have a, you know, that's normal too. Um, but you, you have a touchstone to go back to, which is your own passion versus trying to, um, as a director anyways, because as a writer, you do this all the time, clue into someone else's passion. But as a director, it, it, it did not work at all. So I learned a lot from doing that. Um, so that's what I learned. That's what that does that answer your question, Mr. Forte? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a super quick follow up? Because it was a great question, Aiden. Um, was there ever a moment when you thought like, I want to quit? I mean, I know that's a very extreme but did you think like, oh man, this, this is too much. The, this isn't worth, the creative journey is not worth this pain. Cause I do think the highs of a successful project are really high, but the lows of an unsuccessful project are crushing. I think. I, I would say, you know, flippantly, yes, two o'clock today. <laughs> I mean, I mean, on, on a very superficial level, every once in a while, that idea just float through your head. Like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is so freaking hard. Do they really expect me to do this in this fast or to think about this again? Or, oh my, I don't know. Like, I feel very uncomfortable in the state of not knowing and that is the state of creativity. I don't know. Like if you're waiting to write for when you know, that isn't creativity. Creativity is, I think I know. I'm pretty sure I know. I know. And then you get in, you're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to make this work. What is this? Holy shit. Fuck. This sucks. And then you just keep going and you keep going and you do another version and another version, do that alt dialogue, whatever it is. And suddenly you're like, oh, I didn't know that, but there it is. It's like when sadness laid, no, she was going to lay down. She did. And then I knew. So to me, it's letting that right side of your brain dream. So you don't know. But for me, in terms of your question, it's painful not to know. And my intellect wants to know. And you must suck. And you aren't meant to write this because you don't know. They're paying you to know. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Um, and there's plenty of creative people that only know by talking too, right? That that's how they actually process uh, is so they have to write a lot or talk a lot to get it out. And that's fine too. Usually they end up with partners so that they can do that. Um, not always, but sometimes. Um, so, but in terms of the more deep question you're asking, yes, after that, uh, experience, but you know, even after that experience, it was directing and writing. So I was like, yep, I don't like directing. Uh, but I always knew I loved writing and wanted to write. So, um, you have to remember too, because of, as I've talked about on this show, I took a long journey to writing. I I've done many other careers. I've had full blown careers in Hollywood. So I know what the other things I could be doing are. And I'd rather do this as much as, you know, uh, it, there can be hard days. Uh, like I said, it's still, it's still the boat I'm supposed to be sailing in. Well, so valuable. I can't thank you enough. Um, to any of our listeners, we just want to say thanks for listening. Thanks for being a TSL, um, you know, part of our community. If you haven't joined the Facebook group, you should definitely do that. Um, there's a lot going on over there, tons of support. And I will say quickly for our patrons who are listening, um, we know we haven't run our February Patreon workshop yet, 
don't worry, we're going to cover it. We're planning on um, running two workshops in March. So those will be coming up soon. Stay patient and uh, tons of TSL coming up in the future. That's right. So keep writing and remember you are not alone. Thanks for tuning in to the Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.